Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 20. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 20. An incredible event that changed the course of not only history, but the course of of salvation history to this very day. Incredible, miraculous, and unbelievable change in someone's life. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found there any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Good morning. Um, four weeks ago, I was up here preaching about toes, arms, spirit, and knees. Just, just four weeks. And in, in that um, time, we looked at Acts 6, of how Stephen stepped on the toes of the Sanhedrin and how we might be receptive to others, speaking into our lives for repentance and change. And we also talked about uh, putting our loving arms around a brother or sister as we challenge and support each other in the walk. And how the spirit and the manner in which we do all this comes from spending time on our knees in prayer. So that, that was Acts 6. And, and as we go through our, the scheduling of our sermon series and uh, select preaching dates, uh, we, we don't look for continuity from one story to the next. But in this case, going into Acts 9, we, we kind of get to do that. Uh, the Gospel Project today, uh, the title is called Confronted by the Gospel. And the, the scripture for study that Wes read is the conversion story of Saul, the Damascus Road story. Now this is the same Saul that four weeks ago in Acts 7 was part of the stoning of Stephen. Uh, the same Saul whose feet those coats were laid at as Stephen was stoned. And so today where we're looking at how Saul was confronted and how Saul responded to Jesus Christ and that's that same Saul We'll also take a look at how Ananias was confronted and a bit of his call and how he responded. And so I, I believe both Saul and Ananias were called for different purposes, for different reasons. I mean, God looked down on the earth and said, okay, um, I choose you for this reason, for this purpose. And then I want us to be thinking, how does God call me each and every day? How does he call you? What is he asking of me? What is he asking of you? How many of you know who Ron Harper was? Ron Harper, NBA basketball player, played 16 years in the NBA, so a, a long career. And the, probably the best known years were his last seven years. So all the Bulls fans would know who Ron Harper was, definitely. Um, he also ended with the Lakers for two years. So, so Ron Harper played five years with the Bulls from 95 to 99, and he was part of the second three-peat. You know, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, that group that won three straight championships, Ron Harper was a player on that team. And then following that, he went and played two more years with the Los Angeles Lakers, and he won two more championships. That was with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal being the leading players on that team. Now, Ron Harper was 6'6". During those years, he was considered more of a defensive specialist, uh, very capable of guarding quick guards because of his height advantage, but also some larger players because of some of his, his own quickness and strength that he had. He was a good mid-range shooter 
And during those last seven years, he averaged seven and a half points a game. By no means an all-star. He took six shots a game. So he wasn't a main part of any kind of offensive uh, strategy. He was a role player. He was smart. He was experienced. He had already had nine years in the league, so he knew what the NBA meant. One common part of that also was the head coach that he experienced and had during those seven years, Phil Jackson. So Phil Jackson knew what he could do with the Bulls, and then when Jackson went to the Lakers, kind of took him along with him. But here's a couple things about Ron Harper that you may not remember. In high school, you know, I mean, any NBA player is going to be a very good player in high school. He went to Ohio, played in the state of Ohio, was a first-team All-State player as a senior, averaging better than 20 points a game. He played four years at the uh, University of Miami in Ohio, which is a D1 school, MAC conference. He averaged 24 points a game his junior and senior year. And then he got drafted. And his first nine years, he played for the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, when he played with the Cavaliers, that was Brad Doherty, Mark Price. So they, they had some successful years. But those nine seasons in the NBA, he averaged 19 and a half points a game. That's pretty good. <laughs> You're a top-notch scorer if you're averaging 19 and a half points a game. He was counted on to take shots, 16 shots a game. He was part of those offensive strategies. Once he became a bull and Laker, that changed. Late in games, he might not have even been on the court. And if he was, he was definitely not the number one option or even the number two option. He might have been the number three or four option in some kind of play that was going to be set up. So early on, he goes 19 and a half points a game, taking 16 shots a game, and those last years, seven and a half points a game, six shots a game. Ron Harper was asked to change his game to be part of championship teams. And so I guarantee you there were team conversations prior to even talking to Ron Harper. And when Ron Harper came in to talk to those teams, I am certain part of that was, what's his role? What am I expected to do? But he was definitely selected for a role. Okay, so how does, you know, what does that have to do with scripture today? Well, we'll come back later to just a couple things about Ron Harper. But what, what does Saul experience? What did Ananias experience? So, so here, here's some information about Saul. Saul was born about A.D. 5 in Tarsus, so he was a little younger than Jesus. Tarsus is part of current-day Turkey, and his parents were Pharisees. Okay, yeah, Pharisees, right? That's a bad word, the Pharisees. Uh, one resource I found described that his parental influence would be described this way. They, being the parents, they would have been fervent Jewish nationalists who adhered strictly to the law of Moses, who sought to protect their children from contamination from the Gentiles. Anything Greek would have been despised in Saul's household. And then as a teenager, Saul studied in Jerusalem under Rabbi Gamaliel, a leading authority in the Sanhedrin 
at that time. Gamaliel had a reputation of being one of the greatest teachers in all the annals of Judaism. Top, top teacher. So Saul's education would have been second to none. And it's noted he was very knowledgeable in Jewish history and in dissecting scripture, debating. In Galatians 1.14, Paul reflects on his own education. He says this, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul continued studying, uh, was in kind of plans of becoming a lawyer and potentially a member of the Sanhedrin itself, would have been very good at debates concerning all the finer points of the Jewish law. So he knew what he was talking about. But he would have been one of the Pharisees that Jesus would have been challenging in different ways. It's assumed that Saul was present for Peter's defense of the gospel and the ministry and truth of Jesus the Messiah in Acts 5. And in that setting, Peter and other disciples had been jailed, then had been miraculously released from jail by angels. They returned to the temple courts and continued preaching, even after having been jailed for preaching. They would have been brought into the Sanhedrin and would have been ready to put the apostles to death. And, and during that time, then Gamaliel, again, this was Saul's teacher, persuaded the Sanhedrin to allow them to live, arguing that if the movement was not from God, it would soon die out. And so the apostles were released. Now they were flogged before they were released. And you know what they went and did? Went back out in the courts and started preaching again. So the apostles immediately ignored what the Sanhedrin had told them because they were convicted. I am called to preach and teach about Jesus the Messiah. And so the assumption is Saul would have known all that. He would have seen all of that. And he would have also seen and heard of Stephen's very directed accusation toward the Sanhedrin back in Acts 7. So Paul knew of this group. He heard directly from this group. But he also saw their devotedness to what they were doing. In Acts 8, uh, the Acts 8 begins with this. And Saul approved of their killing him, killing him Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The apostles were still preaching. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So as, as devoted as the apostles were to spreading the message of Jesus Christ, Saul believed what he was doing was right. He believed his belief in the law was proper. And he was smart. He had a lot of education. Uh, in Acts 26, as this has been later on, Acts 26, 9 through 11, Paul reflects on his state of mind in a speech to King Agrippa at that time. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I just did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief, chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison 
And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And so as, as Wes read, Saul had gathered letters. And his plan was to imprison the believers. And he headed off to Damascus. And on his way, his life changed. So at noon, and again, noon, the brightest part of the day, Paul is blinded by this light. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Saul asks, well, who are you, Lord? And now, now keep in mind, Saul's smart. Saul's educated. He knows Jewish history. He knows the scriptures. I think Paul had a bit of an idea of who was calling him. I don't think he was completely ignorant. But I do think that Saul's mind was going a thousand miles an hour. Because he knew what he knew from being taught. He knew what the apostles were preaching. He thought he was right. And now he's being told, Saul, something's got to be different. And notice the response that Saul gets. It, it, it doesn't say, I am the almighty God or I am Jesus. There, there's a further clarification. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Very straightforward, very blunt. And then he's given a direction that's not real clear. He says, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you're going to be asked to do. So it doesn't get full directions right then. But Saul, you're persecuting me. I get up and I want you to go to a city and wait. Saul had just been chosen by the Almighty God for some task yet for him to fully understand. And now he's blind. And he's got to be led down the road the rest of the way to Damascus. And I'm thinking Saul's starting to think a little bit. So those three days, three days that Saul was blind, not eating, not drinking, what was he thinking, what was he doing? And I found this description of Saul's three days from TheEnduringWord.com. It says, it seems that Saul was so shaken by the experience that he was unable to eat or drink for three days. All Saul could do was simply sit in a blind silence. This was a humbling experience. In a time when Saul must have challenged all his previous ideas about who God was and what pleased God. And I also thought of two other times in the Bible that three days were referred to. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. And then he was spit up on the beach. And after those three days, Jonah had a different heart and a different attitude, and he went and he ministered to Nineveh. Jesus Christ rose from the tomb on the third day, conquering Satan and death for eternity. So what, what was going to change in Saul during those three days? Um, R.C.H. Lenski, a Lutheran pastor and author, says this, it is often said that Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. Strictly speaking, that is not the fact. His conversion, his conversion began in his encounter with the law, 
but it was not accomplished until the gospel entered his heart by faith. And that did not occur on the road, but at Damascus. And in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 16, Paul reflects and writes on his experience as he writes to Timothy, said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of the, or for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And in verse 17 of today's scripture, Ananias came into the house, laid hands on Saul, and Saul's sight was restored. He was baptized and he began to regain strength. And as that story continues into verses 19 through 22, Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is indeed the son of God. And this is what continues beyond what Wes read. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Paul was preaching boldly, with a very big difference. In Acts 20, verse 19, Saul spoke to the elders of Ephesus of serving the Lord with great humility that he learned during that time in Damascus. Paul had been confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and had taken up the task that God had given him. God had chosen him. But that process that Paul went through, or that Saul went through, in those three days in Damascus were humbling. His mind was able to process the education that he had had and things that he had seen and observed with the apostles and with Stephen. So Paul's putting all that together. God's spirit is working within Paul during that time. And Wes read of Ananias being told this in verse 15. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the children of Israel. In Acts 22, Paul recognizes that as well. He said, the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And even later in Acts 26, Paul, or Saul says, yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. This would be God speaking, speaking to him. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So Saul, as a child, grew up in a household where the Gentiles were detestable and were a contamination. And now he's planning and accepting a call to go and preach 
to this same group of individuals. Salvation for their souls. I mean, that, that's a huge change of heart in Saul. From a rooted education from childhood to where he is now, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So what change of attitude is God planning in my heart today? What pattern of disobedience, whether it's by something I do, commission, or something I'm not doing, omission? What, what am I holding back from God that inhibits my worship, my fellowship with him? And, and maybe I've got some issues that I don't think are really big. I mean, Saul had some really big issues. He was persecuting Jesus Christ directly. I'm not doing that. But what am I doing that is not allowing me to fellowship with Jesus. And I think we need to be ready to be challenged and changed as some of those things may come to mind. Saul answered yes to what he was confronted with. And with God's strength and power, he made that change, he made that adjustment. God blessed him and others. Paul referred, or West referred to that for eternity. We're being affected by that change in Saul way back then. Okay, so what about Ananias? How was he chosen? Now, last week, uh, the Sunday school lesson was about Philip and Philip ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch. And in Acts 8, Philip is told by an angel to go south to the road, the desert road, and this was a road that was not commonly used, but go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip went. Then the spirit told him, go to that chariot and stay near it. And so Philip did. And that conversation ended up with the eunuch being baptized. Now here's, here's a characteristic that I, I referred to this with the youth last week as well. That's not very specific. Go to this road. Go stand by that chariot. Why? Why am I going to that road? Why am I standing by that chariot? I mean, there, there's some specifics that I think Philip might have been wondering, why am I doing that? But he didn't. He just said, yes, I'll go do that. And God led some of those steps. So here's a little bit of a difference in Ananias' call. In the call for Ananias, there were some specifics. In Ananias' vision... There was a specific street that was named, the street named Straight. There was a specific house that he was to go to, the house of Judas. There's a specific man, Saul of Tarsus. There's a specific thing that this man is doing. He is praying. There's a specific vision he is having. He actually knows you are coming. This man, Saul, knows that Ananias is coming. And there's a specific act. I want you to restore his sight. And so with specific instruction, I mean, if God is that clear, that makes it easier to follow his will, right? Yeah, but all of those things are a bit of what Ananias was recognizing. Ananias then asked, kind of, I'll paraphrase, God, you know who this guy is? You really want me to go. You're taking me into a trap. I might be imprisoned. I might be killed. 
Are you sure? Very natural. So I guess one of the questions I might ask is, if God's calling us, do we want a general call that's not real specific? Or do we want a specific call? Which one's easier? And is our response supposed to be any different regardless of how that call comes? I don't think so. But for Ananias' questioning, um, I, I read some commentary about him doubting that call. But, but the case is not him doubting the call. All the information that Ananias had about Saul was this guy is dangerous. And now he's hearing from God, Ananias, this is somebody that I'm choosing. That's very different information. But all of those details I think also helped Ananias verify, yeah, this is God's call. He went to the street named Straight. He went to the house of Judas. And Saul was waiting there for him. So that's all verification. Now, sometimes we may be asking for verification of calls, and it might not be all that clear, but we're still called to answer yes. Now, I also want to point out when Ananias got to the house, how he greeted Saul. Verse 17 reads this. It said, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul. Brother. Now, remember, Ananias, when the vision came, he questioned, God, do you really want me to go? And do you know who this guy is? So as Ananias is walking across the city of Damascus, I think God was working on Ananias' heart to help him recognize that this brother, Saul, is a brother in Christ. Ananias' first attitude about Saul would have been fear and anxiety. And rightfully so with all the information he had. But by the time Ananias got to the house, there was no longer the fear. There was no longer the anxiety. He was a brother. So Saul had to change his attitude about the Gentiles to be ready to go and preach to them. Ananias had to change his attitude about Saul to be ready to greet him as a brother. And within our human mindset, we all have preconceived notions and understandings and things we think are right. And then we're shocked that sometimes those things change. We like to consider that we're smart. We we know how to gather information. I mean, the, the internet has things at the click of a button. We've got all the information we want and need. And so we stay well informed. We stay up to date. And yet many times we underestimate the power of God and the spirit of change that he can provide for hearts and minds. One of the phrases that that we commonly say or even we sing is God can move mountains. And I truly believe he can and he does. Uh, Phil Wickham has a song that I, I really love. Battle Belongs. 
came out you know, within the last year here. And the first verse of that song says, when all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain, you see the mountain moved. And I, I will say this, when, when I sing that, the, the vision that I have is some obstacle that is in front of me that I'm saying, God, I need that moved. Or I need help getting through that or over it or by it, whatever that may be. So we usually consider that victory or that mountain something that's out in front of us. And I would challenge us, that may not always be the case. In my heart, I can harbor pride, selfishness, anger, envy, greed, a spirit of divisiveness, an ego. I know what's best. Sometimes that mountain's inside of me. And the mountain that needs to be defeated and moved might be me. I and mean, wasn't that the case with Saul? Saul's heart and his belief in what he was doing was what needed to be confronted and moved and changed. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Anyone can be saved by God. Saul, it was pretty good verification of that. Anyone can become a humble, powerful witness for Jesus Christ. Anyone can, can, uh, can surrender completely to God. And that means anybody that I see as somebody that's a challenge for me to get along with, but it also means me. Ananias and Philip were chosen by God for a role. They said yes to that calling, and as a result... Ananias was able to minister to Saul and Saul was able to minister to the Gentiles and we're still affected by those things. So we, we can say, you know, we're affected by what Saul did. Well, we're affected by what Ananias did for Saul. And, and so why do we do all that? Why, why did Ananias respond to Saul? Why did Saul respond to the Lord? Well, we're looking to fellowship with one another. We're looking to fellowship with Jesus Christ. We're looking to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. All that we say and do is to praise our Lord and Maker and glorify God with joy, with peace, with hope, and with love that only He can provide. And so, what, what has God set in place for me to do today? How has He chosen me? How's he chosen you to build his kingdom? Maybe in a small way, maybe in a large way, who knows? What role are we willing to fill? Ron Harper, those last years, was known as a very solid defender. He was a defensive specialist on those teams. But Ron Harper didn't become a good defender simply when he joined the Bulls. He was doing that before that as well. 
just wasn't necessarily recognized for that specific skill and role. But it became more apparent in a new setting. Saul's education from his childhood helped him know scripture. He knew Jewish law. But the spirit that Paul encountered in Damascus helped him to understand that scripture better in a new way. He needed to be directed. Ananias had a loving heart for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He just didn't initially realize that Saul was one of those brothers in Christ. So he had to be open to forgiveness, accepting of God's call. Now, now Paul talks about you know, a lot of his journeys then in, in the letters he wrote, and he faced challenges in those journeys. We will too. Paul was confronted on the Damascus road, but those three days in Damascus is where he learned what God's call was for him. And then as Paul went out, there, there's numerous times where Paul was joyful and bold as he spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even in jail, I, I find, I love this, Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Even while they were in jail, they were praying and singing because they had joy in their heart. I want to finish with two last scriptures that Paul wrote in letters. And this is about joy and about taking that confrontation and accepting a call to build a kingdom and be joyful and loving within that process. Because the reason we do this is for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We're called to praise and glorify. Singing with our voice, singing with our actions, singing with our work, whatever that may be. All the reasons that we sing. So I want to close with 10,000 reasons for my heart to sing. We relish in the confrontation because that gives us freedom, that gives us joy. Joy.